The scripture reading, I'll just uh, have my readers come up, is, uh, is a condensation of a much longer reading out of chapters 4, 5, and 6. The portion I'm going to be reading includes a genealogy that I have significantly condensed. So if it doesn't sound like you've heard it before, that's why. And beforehand, I want you all to know that every Hebrew name you're about to hear is being pronounced exactly as it was pronounced 3,000 years ago. <laughs> Remember this portion of the story of God. It is written in the book that we love, taken from Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived, and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city, and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Enosh lived 99 years and became the father of Kenan. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Jared lived 800 years before he became the father of Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years when he became the father of Lamech. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, 
and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 775 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from animals to man to creeping things to birds to the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thank you for helping me read that. It had a lot of names in it, and I always feel a little bad about that, but uh, they're hard to pronounce. Uh, but Glenn did a great job, and they were just as exactly as they were written 3,000 years ago. So, All right. You know, history, history I, to me is fascinating. I love history, and probably because I also love literature, and history really is just the story of a nation the story of a people, the story of a race. And I always liked to hear the stories and to think about what those stories meant. The only award I got in high school was a history award from the, the, the prestigious uh, Webster Historical Society Award in Webster, New York. Uh, and uh, I, because I really enjoyed what we called it social studies in that day. And it was, uh, uh, it was fascinating to me. History tells us where we've been. It tells us what we have done. And it also tells us the apparent effects of our choices, or at least it tries to tell us that. Seeing where we've been is useful in helping us see where we're headed. Because even though the actors changed constantly, the fact is that history is a story that tends to repeat itself because we are who we are. Today, we have read a condensed history, a micro-history of the world. And I'm calling it the tale of two Lamechs. One Lamech is Lamech Cain. He was a descendant of the murderer Cain, and he was proud of it. He was an apple that did not fall far from the familiar tree, familial tree, and he shared a number of the same character flaws as his ancestor. He had three sons, Yabel, Yubal, and Tubal-Cain. Now, if you're my age and you grew up with the Flintstones, you hear Yabel, Yubal, and Yabba-Dabba-Tubal. <laughs> but fortunately, many of you didn't grow up with that cartoon, so... 
The other Lamech, Lamech Seth, the Lamech who came from the line of Seth, was a distant descendant of the third son of Adam. And presumably Seth was a man of higher character than his older brother Cain. The Lamech Seth side of the family included a man named Enosh, who was at least faithful enough to be associated in chapter 4, verse 25, with the rise, it's, it is said, when men began to call on the name of the Lord, in other words, the rise of, of disciplined spirituality and presumably some organized form of religion. Enoch was a man, another descendant of Seth, was a man who walked with God so closely that one day he was not because God took him. And finally, there's Noah at the end of this long line. Noah, whom God set aside to be something like a second Adam for the human race. Let's take a look at uh, Lamech Cain a little bit here, a little longer. What was Cain's legacy among his descendants? If we are to know who we are, it's interesting that it appears that the legacy of Cain, the spiritual legacy, was not only amplified as it went down the generations of Cain's ancestors, but it seemed to spill over into the family of Lamech Seth as well. Lamech Cain boasted that he killed a man. He boasted about it. He killed not only a man, but a man younger than himself, a man in his youthful prime for striking him and leaving a wound. But most of the commentators say that the word wound in this context would be better translated bruise. Lamech Cain amplified the violence of Cain using an insult as an excuse to brutalize and to kill his opponent. He vowed that if Cain's death would be avenged seven times, that Lamech Cain would be avenged 77-fold. In answer to the boast of this story, thousands of years later, Jesus would call on his disciples to turn the other cheek when struck. And not only that, but Jesus would amplify Lamech Cain's boast by upping the ante to 70 times 7 as the number of times we were to forgive someone who had bruised us. But the point of Lamech's little story here, this is the only thing we know about Lamech, that and, and who he married. The point is that Lamech Cain boasted about being even more violent and vengeful and resentful than his ancient forefather, Cain. It had become a value. Far from heeding the warning that God had given and drawing a lesson from Cain's punishment, this man's character was even more depraved than Cain's. And we're seeing here a trajectory that continues throughout human history. Lamech Cain was the first known polygamist, having two wives. One wife was named Ada, which means ornament, 
which suggests that she was probably beautiful to look at. The other name, Zillah, could mean two things depending on where you put the accents and, and how you look at the, uh, the name. It can mean shadow or it can mean the tingling of a bell. If it is the sound of a bell, then it is because likely because her voice was beautiful to the ear. So you have one wife who was beautiful to see, another who was beautiful to hear. For Lamech, Lamech Cain, the emphasis is on appetite and sensuality. If something was beautiful and good, then one should accumulate as much of it as possible. Again, this also became another ongoing trait in humankind. His sons were Yabel and Yubal and Tubal Cain. They became founders, and unlike the founders of other movements who died in, in our histories, they die in their 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe in their 90s. But these men lived generations to see how their plans and to work their plans into fruition. Oftentimes we wish, oh, if only, you know, Martin Luther King had lived longer, maybe better things could have happened. If only if a certain president had lived longer and been able to do more, or a hero, or a religious leader. These men all lived multiple generations of lives, and they were given the privilege of not only starting a movement, but seeing it progress, seeing it amplified and, and become all that they hoped it would be. Yabel became the founder of herding, but not just subsistence shepherding like Abel was, who lived off his own flock. But Yabel and his people were associated, according to ancient legend and history, to establish large-scale, the large-scale trade of herding animals for food, hide, and wool, as well as for transportation and working fields. Yubel was the founder of musical arts. He established a school or a guild, if you will, of minstrels and bards. And Tubalcain was the founder of industrial artistry, of metalworking, smelting, and smithing. So all of the basic technologies of, of aesthetics and culture it was all there very early on. And it was being built and developed and celebrated. And Lamech Cain and in his kin is the first history written. And it is a history that is perpetually ravenous, always hungry. And it is brutally violent. There's no reason if I can get it and I'm powerful enough that I will take it from you. And in this we see a mirror of our own history with rapid expansion in violence, appetite, wealth, technology, art, and culture. And in all of these achievements, there is conquest without a sense of victory. There is achievement with no satisfaction or slaking of hunger or thirst. There is artistic expression that is less and less aware of true beauty. 
Humanity is chronically dissatisfied with life, even when we are successful and prosperous. Instead of admitting that it is because we have severed our ties with God, we have from the very beginning convinced ourselves that what we need to build a perfect society to perfect our lives is just a little more power. Power to order the chaos, fill the void, and create our perfect world. Or a little more time. A little more time to see our plans through. To go beyond just the, the opening phases of a change and to see it all bear its fruit. And it appeared that the wish was being granted this desire we were, was actually taking place in the first history that was written in humankind. It was written because these people lived longer and they seemed to be able to do extraordinary things even that far back. In the days of both Lamechs, Lamech Cain and Lamech Seth, humankind seized on an opportunity that is both unique in human history and pretty bizarre. It's in Genesis 6, verses 1 to 2 and verse 4, and I'll read that. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So we have two questions here. Who are the Nephilim and who are the sons of God? The Nephilim, we're told in this passage, were men of renown. And that's a phrase that in the, the original languages would be referring to valiant warriors, heroes, uh, uh, like Achilles, or um, it was the Trojan, in the Trojan War. I've forgotten now. I didn't take time to write it down. Any human hero uh, that was available to them, that's what they were, were considered men of renown. And in, in the census of David's uh, army, you often see the men, the mighty men or men of renown and special names lifted after them. These were men who were noted heroes of the nation. The men, the sons of God went into the daughters of men and the result was an extraordinary line of gifted, perhaps super, superhuman, the Nephilim. Who were the Nephilim? The only other scripture reference that has that name in it is in Numbers chapter 13, 13, in which the men whom Moses sent to spy on Canaan reported seeing Nephilim, or giants, living in the land. The spies said, we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. 
Today's scripture says that they were legendary for being mighty men. And again, that is a phrase which most often is used to describe warrior champions of an army or of a nation. So all we really know about them is that they were visibly superior in stature to normal men and legendary for being great military conquerors. Now we could take that to the bank because that's the kind of persons they were. Well, who in the world are the sons of God, and what, what does this say about what, what really went on here? The biblical use of the phrase, the sons of God, in all the other passages that it appears in is consistent. In Job 1, 2, 38, and again in Psalm 29, in all of these cases, the phrases describe angelic spiritual beings. Now, we talk about angels as if, like we would talk about humans. The truth of the matter is that angels are a, a cast of creation. And about all we know about them is that they're not us. I mean, the, the, the thing is that they, they don't relate to time and space in the same way that we do. And so we call all creatures like that angels. We, there may be millions of species of angels out there. And, and indeed, we know, according to the wild writings in Ezekiel, that there are seraphim and cherubim. And there's all kinds of different creatures that we call spiritual beings or angelic beings. And they're just a big... They're, they're just a name that we give to a class of creature that we don't understand. The other thing to remember about angels is that just about every time a human being meets an angel, they are scared to death of them. Second, and and, and, and there's, the angels are saying, do not be afraid. Or when a, when a believer meets an angel or sees an angel, oftentimes they are tempted to worship the angel, and the angel has to caution them, do not worship me. I am a creature just as you are. But now you're understanding that whatever this creature or creatures are, they appear as gods to us. How would... The ancient Near Eastern readers of Genesis who were, I mean, it, Moses was the one who pulled the Pentateuch together. We have to believe that the writings existed in different places and different uh, uh, forms. But Moses was the one who was responsible for pulling together the Pentateuch. And that would have been at the time that they were, the children of Israel were leaving uh, slavery in Egypt and going into Canaan. How would they have understood what Moses was saying when they heard it? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern legends, the intermingling of spirit beings and humans often resulted in, human, uh, in superhuman characters, what we call demagogues. In Greek mythology, Hercules is one of these characters, all right? Super strength. Did this really happen? Are we understanding, or is this a, a, a metaphor I couldn't tell you. I just, I'm telling you what I do know, what I've seen, and what I read in this text. The sons of God in ancient Near Eastern literature, outside of the Bible, when the phrase sons of God was used, it meant, a, it meant lesser members of a divine pantheon. So could the sons of God, and this is the other possibility, could the sons of God be the sons of Seth, and the daughters of men be the daughters of Cain? While it is true that there were more faithful men in the line of Seth than of Cain, 
There's no mention of a special covenant relationship between God and Seth's family that would warrant the title sons of God. That would be a pretty big leap. It's possible. It's a possibility. But even if that is the case, how could any combination of human genetic material from Adam's line result in an extraordinary line of creatures, of giants, of people who were remarkable in their military and athletic prowess? Why would this produce a race of superheroes, or uh, more accurately, supervillains? One commentator refers to a similarly puzzling reference in Daniel chapter 10. And this has always fascinated me ever since I was young and I read this passage and said, what is going on here? In chapter 10 of Daniel, there is an angelic being who comes to Daniel and said that he was delayed because he was at war with the king of Persia. The king of Persia? Yeah. I've got, I didn't, I failed to reference this, and so I'm not remembering it right. But there are two angelic, there's angelic beings that represent, that refer to themselves as the kingdom that they represent. So apparently there are angelic beings. We can either think that they are assigned to earthly kingdoms, or maybe it's the other way around, that earthly kingdoms, the power and the military prowess and the the ascendancy of earthly kingdoms happens because they are in some way associated with an angelic or spiritual power struggle that is going on. All of this is beyond my pay grade. I don't know, but we're given hints of it. And probably the reason we're given hints of it and not told is it's a little too scary to contemplate. We are like ants on the scrimmage line of a Super Bowl game. There's this huge game going on around us. Millions of us die because of it. And yet we really don't understand the game. We're part of it because we're stuck in the middle of it. But we don't understand the forces that are moving around us. The prophet Ezekiel refers to the king of Tyre as Satan himself. The, the implication being that, earthly, that the earthly king of Tyre was totally co-opted by Satan, who was the secret basis of Tyre's actual power. The Apostle John in the Revelation tells us of a spiritual dragon, the serpent of old, that is the power behind the throne of the great Babylon, the counterfeit kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians refers to the mystery of lawlessness that will be fulfilled just before the day of the Lord when a man becomes the incarnate representative of Satan to the whole world, complete with divine signs and wonders, a diabolical counterfeit of the Messiah. There is a mystery to the operation of evil in creation that we do not thoroughly understand, and this mystery is reflected in today's passage from Genesis. Why would the spiritual powers choose to corrupt and co-opt human leaders? Why would they bother? Well, presumably for the same reason that the serpent deceived Eve in the first place. For, at very least, spite to ruin the good that God had created just to make him miserable. Why would human fathers, who are very protective of their daughters, and don't even, generally don't like their daughters to marry someone outside of their own ethnic group, their own tribal group, 
Why would they allow such marriages? Because it was the answer to the hopes and dreams of humankind since they tried to throw aside the image of God in them and desired to become God themselves. What human culture and technology, what Yabel and Yubel and Tubal-Cain couldn't produce, human spirituality would try to harness. Lacking the power to be true gods, we tried to marry in to the family. Is this how it happened? I couldn't tell you. It, it seems literarily that that's, if to be consistent with the way it's talked about in the rest of Scripture, it may be just a metaphor. What we can take to the bank is that in some way, shape, or form, through all of culture and technology and spirituality, there were a group of very gifted people called the Nephilim that humanity put their hope in, and we've been putting our hope in Nephilim, our whole, the history of our whole race. Somebody's going to save us. Did they bring prosperity? Do they ever bring prosperity and peace? Only in our dreams, only in our legends, only in plays like Camelot. It never really happens. These men were warriors and emperors. They were devourers and conquerors. They were the hope of humankind without God, and all they did was make widows and sire orphans. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent, only evil continually. The word intent is the Hebrew noun yitzer. It is the same word used when describing the work of a potter. The result of the potter's hand that crafts and shapes the clay. Every thought of the human mind was working day and night like the potter's clay with premeditation and calculated intent to build a vessel for selfishness, a vessel for evil. This is our legacy, and it has been from the beginning. We continue to put even believers transfer the passions that they should have for Jesus Christ and his kingdom into passions for self-appointed Nephilim, people that we believe for one reason or another hold the keys to our survival, our saviors. Man with more power and more time to do the work that he has in mind has always resulted in unbridled injustice, greed, and violence. Mighty men, whether thousands of years ago or now, they make widows, they sire orphans. That is their legacy. God's reaction, he was grieved in his heart, or as it says in the NIV, his heart was filled with pain. One Old Testament scholar, Wenham, translates the phrase, uh, grieved in his heart. He translates it bitterly 
indignant. It's a phrase that combines the most intense form of emotion, a mixture of rage or outrage, as well as bitter loss and sorrow. It sounds remarkably similar to the outrage that Jesus expressed at the death of Lazarus and at the broken hearts of his friends Mary and Martha. But in the line of Lamech, Seth, Lamech, Seth, there was hope. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah wasn't one of these mighty men. He was not a Nephilim. As a matter of fact, we don't know a great deal about Noah. Western civilization, to this day, has relied on technology, not spiritual occult, although that may, day may come, to provide it with the power and the time it become, and the time to become the gods that it imagines is our destiny. We believe that if we just have more time, more power, our technology will eventually make us as gods. The results are similar. Our society is unraveling. We want to, to limit people. We want to stop the excess of people to guns. We want to lock away our schools to make them more, even more penitential than they already are in many respects because of the violence that's happening, and yet no one ever seems to ask the obvious question, how can this be that our children want to murder other children? What is happening to us? How have we gotten this way? And we don't ask the question because we're afraid of the answer. But in the midst of all of this unraveling and that growing tide, the swelling fear, we are the church of Jesus Christ. God's grace has extended itself to us as it did Noah. Like Noah, we aren't called to be Nephilim. We are called to be obedient. Obedient in the midst of spiritual decay, in the midst of social disorder, and to trust that God will do what needs to be done. Our aim, in the meantime, our job as the church and this is stated in scripture, is to plead with the world to be reconciled to God. Rather than build an ark, God is building a kingdom. You and I are no good to God if we look to the world around us, just like Peter looked at the waves surrounding him and lose hope. Our hope is in him. If death speaks into the lives of our culture, into our lives, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that it will not have the last word. It will not even have the best word. This is our hope. This is our task. This is what we must share. We are not gods, but we are image bearer of the true God. Let's pray. Lord God, we would lose hope in all that we are because we 
the light that is in us, the light that is in one generation that believes in you, is so easily extinguished. Because we are dust, and we are so easily lost. I pray, Lord God, that you would reclaim us, that even in this time and in this place, you would reclaim your people. You would do in us what we cannot hope to do in ourselves, which we are wrong to try to do in ourselves. You are the author of every true revival, and we plead, Lord God, that you would one more time in our lifetime at least rise up again and pull us back from the brink. For I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.